Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. All right, Christ Fellowship. How are we doing this morning? We're doing good. I have a lot of energy in me, about five espresso shots, a lot of coffee. So if I'm, if I'm animated, I'm running around everywhere, you know, don't, just, just bear with me for a little bit until, you know, until the sugar high goes down, all right? <laughs> I just want to give a quick shout out to everybody who's watching online right, right now. Big up to our Christ Fellowship family online. Thank you for joining us this Sunday morning. We really appreciate it. For those who don't know, my name is Eddie. And this morning, I get the honor and the privilege of just sharing a small little piece of God's heart with each and every single one of you today. And if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, for those who have been with us since the beginning of the year, you know exactly what we have been doing every Sunday. But if you're a first-time visitor with us this, uh, this morning or if you're watching online for the first time, I just want everybody to be on the same page before we move forward because I think it's very important for each and every single one of us to be on the same page. So since the beginning of this year, we have been wrestling together as a one big family. We've been wrestling together God's word. Now, don't let that scare you. What I mean by that is that we have been doing a deep dive into each book one by one every single Sunday since the beginning of January. We started all the way in Genesis, and now we're all the way to where we are right now. And the cool thing about that is that we have learned so much about God doing it that way. We have learned so much about his love. We have learned so much about his compassion. We have learned so much about his character, you know, who God really is, as opposed to who we thought he was, you know, when we were growing up, or who we thought he was from what we heard from other people. No, 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 no. We've actually have been diving so deep into God's word that we've been really discovering who God is. And I think that is something that is so amazing. Another thing that we have discovered is the history of God's people. And the cool thing about the history of God's people is that we have found out that God places a supremely high value on the importance of relationship. We've seen it all throughout. We've seen it with the way that God has interacted with his people since the beginning of time. And the fact that he places such a high value on his relationship with his people and the people's relationship with him, that tells us something super important, that it's all about relationships. It's what God wants to have with you. He wants to have that deep, intimate, super awesome, super cool relationship. We have, and I just, you know, brought my Bible up here today. We have over 2,000 plus years. Check this out. We have over 2,000 plus years of our history in these pages, dating all the way back to the creation of everything, to the creation of everything. The generation now, unfortunately, views this as a relic. They view it as something that's old and antiquated. They see this as something that is no longer relevant today in our day and age. 
But unfortunately, the more that, well, unfortunately for them, not for me, but the more I read it, the more I study it, and the more that I take a look around the world that we live in today, something really stands out to me about the Bible, that it's just as relevant today and needed. It's just as relevant today and needed, just as much as it was relevant and needed back then. When I think about this book and I realize that it is God's word and how they've tried to destroy this book, they've literally tried to wipe this book off the face of the planet and they have been unable to since the beginning of time. No wonder it's called the living word. The living word. The cool thing about this is that we are more than halfway through of what we have come to know of what is called the Old Testament. We're maybe like, I think, two books removed before we're done, and we venture off into what we know as the New Testament, but we can't get there yet. So before we get to the New Testament, we have to talk about Zephaniah and Haggai. Yes, those are names that exist. I would never name my child that, Zephaniah or Haggai. I'm pretty sure you probably would never name your child that, but they are books that exist in the Bible. And what I love about these books that we are tackling right now is that they are considered the most kind of unknown books. Nobody really reads Zephaniah. Nobody really reads Haggai, but check this out. It's in the Bible. It's in God's word. So it's just as important as every other book that is there. Zephaniah and Haggai are part of a section in the Bible of what we have come to know as the minor prophets. Pastor Carlos pointed out last week that they are minor in terms of the size or length of their message but they're not minor in terms of the importance of their message. You see, their messages, although they were very short, because when you read the minor prophets, their messages are like this, boom, 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 and you're done, you're in, you're out, that's it. But because they are so short, they're also super impactful and very, very important, which tells us something cool about God. You see, God doesn't have to say a lot, to say a lot. Think about that. God doesn't have to say a lot to say a lot. When I think about all the way back to the beginning of creation, God said, let there be light. Four words, and boof, there was light. If God says, you are healed, boof, you're healed. If God says, you are forgiven, three words, boom, you're forgiven. God doesn't have to say a lot to say a lot, to change your life around, to do the amazing, the impossible. He doesn't have to say a lot. And when I take a look at these two books, Zephaniah and Haggai, they're very short, but it's true. It's true. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with Zephaniah. We're going to talk about Haggai a little bit later. And the way that I view these two books, Zephaniah and Haggai, the way I view them, I view Zephaniah, because I'm a basketball head for all you guys who don't know. The way I view Zephaniah, I view Zephaniah as tossing the alley-oop. And I view Haggai as coming down like LeBron James, preferably Kevin Durant, grabbing that ball and slamming it down, home. Zephaniah tosses the alley-oop, Haggai slams it home. So they're connected in that way. Zephaniah perfectly sets up the book of a guy. So I just want to give you a couple of quick facts about Zephaniah before we get into a lot of it. 
Zephaniah, for those who don't know, Zephaniah is the last prophet in the Old Testament that speaks about the destruction and the judgment of Jerusalem. We've been talking about that for a few weeks already. We've been talking about how Babylon is going to come down and be used as God's instrument to lay waste to Jerusalem, completely burn it to the ground, and to take away the people and bring them into exile for about 70 years. That moment is 40 years from the writing of this book. That moment is 40 years away. Think about that. 40 years isn't a very long time. It's this close. It's only 40 years away. And Zephaniah takes place during that time period. Zephaniah, believe it or not, is unique in the sense because most scholars consider his message to be like a compilation of all the other Old Testament prophets that spoke about, you know, judgment and Babylon and all those other things. But that does not mean that he repeats a lot. Zephaniah actually says some really cool things, and we're going to touch on them in just a second. The book of Zephaniah only has three chapters, one, two, three. That's it. You can actually read it over a cup of coffee. It takes like five minutes. The period that it covers is between 638 and 621 BC. As you can see, Zephaniah had a very short ministry period. It was only about 17 years. I'm sorry. 17 years seems like a long time. 17 years for me is kind of short. All right, 17 years is, is, is a very short period. The cool thing and interesting thing about it, though, is that his ministry took place during the reign of King Josiah. So you have to go all the way back to the book of Kings and read about King Josiah. And from there, you figure out Zephaniah existed and prophesied and was used by God during that time period. And I thought that was so amazing. The book, obviously, is prophetic in nature because Zephaniah is a prophet. And the main theme of the entire book of Zephaniah The main thing, the main point, the one thing that you can gather from the book of Zephaniah can be summarized in this one verse. And it's right at the beginning of Zephaniah's writing. It's right at the beginning of it. It's Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. This is the main theme of the entire book. And the reason why I use the King James Version is because the King James Version has a little bit more, a little more, a little more machismo, a little more with more pizzazz on it. The New Testament version is pretty good, but, the, but I'm sorry, the NIV is pretty good, but I like the King James version better. And it says this. This is the main theme of Zephaniah. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. In other versions, in the NIV, it says, for the day of the Lord is near. But I just like, for the day of the Lord is at hand. When I was reading that verse and I found out that that was the main theme, for me, I was like, well, what does hold thy peace mean? Does it mean I'm over here, like, how do you hold peace? Like, what is that? Like, like this word, like that phrase to me really, really stuck out. So I had to figure out what it meant. I can't just leave you guys. Hey, guys, hold thy peace. All right, have a good Sunday. You guys are going to leave like, well, what are you talking about? We don't even know what hold thy peace means. Well, I I did all the legwork for you. I figured it out for you. Hold thy peace. That phrase in the original Hebrew is the word hasa. Say hasa. Ooh, somebody said it over here with a lot of authority. Say hasa again. Yeah, it sounds pretty good to say hasa. I'm going to go home and say hasa to my wife. When I tell you what it means, <laughs> don't say hasa to your wife. If you're married, don't say hasa. You say I love you. You say, she's looking at me right now. She's like, you better not say that to me. I'm like, oh, I got you. Don't worry about it. 
got that hint, you know what I'm saying? But hasah means hush, keep silence, be silent, be still. Zephaniah's message to the people starts off with a shh. Everybody who's listening to the message right now, shh. Be silent. Be still. Keep silence. Why? Why did Zephaniah start off his message this way? Well, it's because of the phrase that follows immediately after that. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the day of the Lord is at hand. You see, we hear that phrase. Let's be honest. We hear that phrase. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. We hear it. Oh, that's a, it's, it's a really cool phrase in the Bible. It's in the Bible. We heard it. It's whatever. For the day of the Lord at hand. We don't bat an eye at something like If we were reading Zephaniah and we were reading that verse, we would literally just keep reading. Oh, for the day of the Lord is at hand, the next verse, and we just keep going. But the unfortunate part is, is that that verse, it should mean something to us. It should mean something to us because it meant something to them back then. You see, when God's people, whenever they heard a prophet, didn't matter what, who, who the prophet was, whenever they heard that phrase, for the day of the Lord is at hand, coming from a prophet, that meant only one thing. It meant that God was on his way. It meant that God was on, God is coming. God is on his way. But he wasn't on his way kind of like, oh, hey, how you doing? Shake your hand. My name's God. You're, you? I, I don't know your name. No, oh, Jeremiah, gotcha. He wasn't coming to sign autographs and perform miracles for the little children. He wasn't coming at that point for the day of the Lord is at hand. He wasn't coming to give free hugs of love at that time. No, that phrase for the day of the Lord is at hand. That phrase meant that God was coming. He was on his way. But he was on his way as judge. He was on his way as righteous judge. To judge the people for the rebellion, for their sin. And when God comes to execute his judgment, the only thing that we can do at that time is be silent and still before the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. Let me tell you something. When God shows up in his majesty, radiating the light of a thousand suns, we're not going to be silent and still by choice. We're not. It's not going to be like, oh my Lord, there's Jesus. You know what? I'm just going to choose to chill over here. No, we're going to be in complete awe of his majesty, of his glory. It's going to be crazy when Jesus shows up. We're going to be silent and still because we are going to be in awe of who he is. John, John, one of Jesus' disciples, John, the one who walked and talked with Jesus physically for three years, the one who was literally standing right next to Jesus as he raised Lazarus from the dead, the one that was standing next to Jesus that saw his transfiguration, the one that ate with him at the Last Supper, John, the guy that was chilling with Jesus when Jesus died and resurrected and went to heaven and John was exiled on the island of Patmos, Jesus came back to John. Just to give you an idea of the reaction that maybe we might have, Jesus reappeared to John as he, and, and was giving him the book of Revelation. And John says this about Jesus when he sees him. Revelation 1.17. He says, when I saw him, John, when I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet 
as though dead. The guy who walked with him and talked with him and was chilling with him, who was literally, yo, geez, let me get a pound. I got you a pound, John. The guy who was that guy literally says that when he saw him, he is going to fall at his feet as though dead. What do you think you and I are going to do? What do you think you and I are going to do? For the day of the Lord is at hand. When the people heard this, they should have clamored up. They should have righted the ship. They should have repented immediately. But unfortunately, the message fell on deaf ears. Nobody heard it. They heard it, but they didn't let it penetrate. They weren't listening. And oh, how this morning I pray right now. I pray for open ears. I pray for open ears for every single one of us to hear the heart of God, that we would not be like the people back then, that the message would land, that it would hit. As Zephaniah continues through chapter 2, he takes an interesting turn, and he begins to tell the people of God what is going to happen to them. I'm sorry, what is going to happen to the other nations outside of them? This is, I thought this was very interesting. He begins to tell them that God is going to bring the sword to the other outside nations. He's going to bring the sword to Philistia. He's going to bring the sword to Cush. He's going to bring the sword to Moab. He's going to bring the sword to Assyria. Now, if you take a look at Jerusalem, and let's just say you put it in the middle right here, right? And you were to pinpoint those other places that I just told you on the map, Cush, Assyria, um, what were the other ones? Oh, my gosh. Moab and Moab and Philistia, if you were to put them on, they're literally to the north, south, east, and west outside of the nation of Israel. And I thought that was so interesting because what's interesting about it is that it shows us that God's judgment is not only reserved for his people. It may start with us, but God's judgment goes outside of that. It applies to everyone. What does that mean? That means that whether you are a believer in God or you're not a believer in God. That means whether you choose to acknowledge that he exists or you choose to not acknowledge that he exists. That means that whether you follow him or you don't follow him, the reality is this, it doesn't matter. God is still king over everyone. He is king over everyone. Those who are in the faith and those who are outside the faith, whether you are an Orthodox Jew, whether you're Indian, whether you're Muslim, doesn't matter what you atheist. God is king over everyone. And because he is, his word still applies to everyone. As Zephaniah begins to wrap up in his last chapter, he tells the people three things. And there are three really quick points that I'm just going to mention right now because chapter three is the very last chapter in Zephaniah. One of the things that Zephaniah reveals to the people is that he reveals to them where they really are with God. Where they really are with God. There's a lot of us, sometimes we think we're up here with God. But then we read his word and then we realize, oh snap, I'm down here. But then the opposite is also true. There are a lot of us who think, man, my relationship with God is, is horrible. It's, it's down here. But then you read his word and you realize you're not that you're up here. Being close to God, reading his word, it does something. It really tells us where we really are with God. And sometimes we have a fear inside of us that, you know what, I really don't want to know 
so I'm not going to read? But that's the only way you're going to find out. So Zephaniah tells the people this about the status of them with their relationship with God. He tells them this in Zephaniah 3, 2. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She meaning the people. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Here we can see that because of the way the people have chosen to live their life without God, they've chosen to live life without God. They were doing what they wanted and they were satisfying their own needs. They were sacrificing to statues that didn't have any power. They were ignoring God's commandments and his statutes. They, were, they weren't doing anything with God. They were living life the way that they wanted to live life. And because they were living life the way that they wanted to live life, look what happened to them as a result. They became a people that don't obey anyone. You know what that, you don't obey anyone. You're walking around saying, Yo, I'm not listening to you. I'm doing what I want right now. YOLO. I'm doing what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, however I want, whenever I want. You can't tell me what to do. I'm not listening to you. Oh, you're, you're 80 and I'm 20? I'm, I'm definitely not listening to you. I'm not listening. I'm obeying nobody. He says that they don't accept any correction from anybody, meaning that they always think that they're right. You can't correct me. That's my truth. That's my perspective. You believe that? That's fine. It's cool. Yo, you say the sky is blue. I believe it's purple. It's my truth. It's my truth. I'm never wrong. I'm always right. There's a sense of pride that comes with that. To never be able to accept correction from somebody? That's how the people were. They didn't trust in the Lord. Why didn't they trust in the Lord? Because they were trusting in their own strength. They were trusting in their own abilities. They were trusting in the things that they felt secure in, the things that they were able to control, the things that they were able to manipulate, the things that made them feel like they were all right. And check this out. When, it, when you don't trust somebody, it becomes hard for you to get close to that person. Because right after that, Zephaniah tells the people, because you didn't trust in the Lord, you did not draw near to the Lord. It's crazy. And in the same way, if we choose to not live for God, we could easily, easily fall into the same pattern that Zephaniah has revealed to the people here. We could fall into not obeying God. We can fall into not accepting his correction. We can fall into not trusting him. And because we don't trust him, guess what, guess what else we do? We don't draw near to him. It becomes very difficult. This is the very thing that sin does. Sin doesn't allow you to draw near to God. Sin separates you from God, and it hardens your heart, and it prevents you from developing that intimate relationship. Remember that we spoke about in the beginning? It prevents you from developing that intimate relationship that God wants to have with you, with us. This was the status of the people during Zephaniah's time. And I wonder if anyone is feeling that way right now separated 
far, not being able to draw near. The second thing Zephaniah tells them is that he tells them about the destruction of the city. We already went over that. The third thing he tells them, he tells the people something, and I think this is cool. He tells the people something amazing. He tells the people something amazing. Zephaniah, he pivots here. And I can imagine him hearing from God. God's like, tell them this, tell them this, tell them this. Okay, now tell them this. And the thing that God wanted them to tell him, Zephaniah, tell the people what's going to happen to them after Babylon comes in. Tell the people what's going to happen to them after the 70 years. Zephaniah, I want you to project to the people. Tell them about the greatness and the good that I'm going to do after the judgment comes. Give the people hope. Give them something to look forward to. And in the very last verse of the book of Zephaniah, he says this. Zephaniah speaking to the people. At that time, I, God, will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. It's almost as if God is saying, listen, you're going to be captive for 70 years. You're going to be enslaved for 70 years. But when I do what I'm going to do to bring you back, you're not going to believe with your own eyes what you are seeing. It's going to be so amazing. You're going to think that it's so impossible. You're going to think that your situation is so dire and that there's no way out. But when I, God, do what I'm going to do, you're not going to believe it. You're going to be amazed. And it tells us one last cool thing about God in Zephaniah because of that. Whenever there is judgment, righteous judgment, Whenever there is judgment from God, whenever there is correction from God, it is always followed with an opportunity for restoration. It is. God loves us so much. God is so gracious towards us that in the middle of the messes that we create for ourselves, God is standing out there with his hand like this saying, hey, Come back home. Come back home. There's always restoration. His hand is always extended. Zephaniah's message ends on that high note, and you think the people would be overjoyed. But the people didn't receive it. For the day of the Lord is at hand. Jerusalem is destroyed just as God said it would be. His people are scattered and taken away into slavery just as God said it would happen. They are enslaved for 70 years just as God said they would be. But after 70 years, God brings them back just as he said he would. And from here enters the prophet, Haggai. But before we get there, 
I got something really cool that I want to show you. How many of you can tell me what this is right here? I got this really cool picture for you guys. How many of you know what this is? Oh, can you see it? Can you see it? If you live in Elizabeth, I guarantee you got one of these. I heard it. Did anybody know it? It's a ticket. It's a traffic ticket. How many of you guys remember your first traffic ticket? Come on. Come on. A couple of hands went up. Your first, yeah, your first one. I know you've been driving for, oh, some hands went up. Yep, yep, yep. My wife just got a couple. I'm not going to tell you what they were, right? But, right, I remember my first traffic ticket like it was yesterday. I was cruising down Clifton Street in Elizabeth in my forest green Hyundai Elantra. It was a manual. My dad, you know, made me, made me drive stick shift. That's how it was. I was bumping Wu-Tang Clan in the cassette. That's how old it was. I wasn't a believer at that time. Wu-Tang Clan. I was, I was bumping it hard, and I came to this intersection, this four-way stop sign. And I came to this intersection, and as I was listening to Wu-Tang, I just, Wu-Tang, whoop, and I popped the left. Right when I popped that left, whoop, whoop, red lights, purple, blue lights came up, and I was like, oh, snap. And I pulled over, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a good guy like that. I pulled over, and the first thing that came to my head was, my parents are going to kill me. They literally told me, Eddie, you got your license. Here's a car. Don't get a ticket. That was the first thing they told me. Don't get a ticket. The first thing I do, I'm sitting there with the cops behind me like, man, this. so I'm in the car and I'm praying to God. Mind you, I don't really have a relationship with God. I don't know. I just know that there's a God. So I'm like, God, please, you got to get me out of this ticket. My parents are going to kill me. God, get me out of this ticket. And all of a sudden the cop comes up. License, registration, insurance card. I give it to him and I'm like, sir. And then he just walks away from me. Doesn't even let me explain anything. He's one of those cops. So while he's in his car, squad car, doing his thing, I sit there and I, I, I do one last Hail Mary to, to the Lord. I'm like, God, if you get me out of this ticket, I promise you, I will pray every day. Lord, if you get me out of this ticket, I, prom- I will read that, that book that my mom keeps shoving in my face. Uh, the Bible. I'll read the Bible. Lord, I'll read the Bible. Lord, if you get me out of this ticket, I promise you, I will do that every day without fail. So the cop gets out of the car, and I see the long strip of, of the paper. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so bad. So he comes back up to me, and he says, hey, listen, I pulled you over because you didn't signal going left. And I was like, oh, I blame Wu-Tang, man. Wu-Tang's fault. And then he hands me the paper. He's like, listen, I ran your license. I just found out you got your license like two weeks ago. This is a warning. It's not a ticket. So I said, thank you, turned Wu-Tang back up, and I went home, immediately went home. I went home, I went to sleep, and when I woke up the next morning, I immediately went down to go have some cereal. After the cereal, I watched some MTV. After the MTV, my boys called me up, Eddie, you want to go play basketball? I'm like, yo, I'm down, let's go. Went, got into it, went to go play basketball. It was weeks later that I realized, oh, wait, I didn't do the thing that I said I was, that I was going to do. I didn't do it. Have you ever said something like that to God? Have you ever made a promise like that to God? God, if you would just, then I would. Maybe you did that when you were in school, when you were on the verge of taking a test that you didn't study for. God, if you just help me pass this test, I promise you I would. If you would just. Or maybe you did it to get that special somebody's number. 
Or maybe you did it, you know, for all you, you know, new millennials that are out there. Or maybe you did it for the mailman when it was report card season. Lord, if you would just please let the mailman lose my report card before he gets home. If you would just do that, then I would just. Or actually, Lord, let me be home when the mailman comes home so I can get the report card. Lord, if you would just, that I would. At some point in our lives, I think every single one of us have said that. And I can take a guess, too, that just like me, we probably forgot to do what we said we were going to do. Because just like me, we got too busy with our own stuff. We got too busy with our own stuff. And that right there, that getting busy with our own stuff or being too busy with our own stuff, that right there sets up the backdrop of Haggai. The prophet Haggai, some quick facts about him really fast. Haggai is the most accurately dated book in the entire Old Testament. You'll see why in a second. It is the most accurately dated book in the entire Old Testament. They have it down to the day. They have it down to the day of when the events of that book happened. It only has two chapters, very short. But remember, God doesn't have to say a lot to to say a lot, right? It takes place in 520 BC, right when God's people had returned from exile. The style of writing that describes Haggai is paranetic. Don't be confused about that fancy SAT word. I was when I first saw it. What it really means is that it reads more like a sermon than it does prophecy. Haggai was a prophet of the Lord, but his message to the people was more like a sermon rather than prophecy. The main theme of the book of Haggai can be described in two words, priority and obedience. Two words that maybe some of us don't like too much. Priority and obedience. And just to set it up really fast, 70 years have passed. God did what he said he was going to do. The alley-oop is there. And God brings the people back. Excuse me. He brings the people back from exile. They are led by somebody named Zerubbabel. I have to say it that way because Jensa Daniel messed me up. She said it that way one time on the stage, and I can't say it regular any, anymore from that point forward. Thank you, Jensa Daniel. But Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel came back with 50,000 people of God. There were a lot more, but only 50,000 of these people came back. The consensus was, was that these 50,000 people that came back, they were the most excited, they were the most motivated, and they were the most spiritual of all of the people that were left in Babylon. So these 50,000 people were excited, motivated, super spiritual. The other ones that stayed in Babylon, they stayed. But these people were the ones that came back. They were motivated for two reasons. One, they were coming back to rebuild their house. And two, they had the awesome privilege of rebuilding the temple of God. Remember, it was laid waste. It was burnt down to the ground. But they had the awesome privilege of rebuilding God's house. Can you imagine that? Being like super spiritual. What do you want to do? I'm going to go build a church. Yeah, I'm I'm down. I'm doing it. I'm I'm, I'm there. That's kind of like the mentality of these people. So the people arrive back in Jerusalem. But something odd happens. One year goes by. And the temple is not rebuilt. Two years go by. And the temple is not rebuilt. 
Five years, seven years, nine years, 17 years go by and not one stone was laid. So God sends to them Haggai to motivate them, to encourage them, and to light a fire in their spirit. And I believe that's what God wants to do with us today. God wants to light a fire in our spirit. So it starts off in chapter 1, Haggai. Remember, Haggai is coming to the people. They've been dormant, so to speak, for 17 years, not doing anything about God's house. And we start off right off the bat. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, remember, it's the most accurately dated book in the entire Old Testament. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Man, that's a mouthful. Son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, the 50,000, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. For 17 years, this is what the 50,000 people kept saying. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And I'm almost embarrassed kind of to say this because they had reasons. And when I looked up what those reasons were for them not building for those 17 years, you'll see what I'm talking about. They had three reasons. I'm just going to breeze through them. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. One of the reasons why God's house was not rebuilt yet was because they had not received a good harvest. For the past 17 years that they were there, the crops were not producing. So because the crops were not producing, they could not rebuild God's house. Oh, the wheat, the wheat didn't come in good enough. We can't rebuild God's house. Oh, the rice didn't come in good enough. We can't rebuild God's house. Oh, the corn, ah, we don't have it. We can't rebuild God's house. So for 17 whole years, since the crops were not producing, they said they were unable to build the Lord's house. Another reason why they said they weren't able to rebuild was because they had fear. They had fear of the people who were outside of Jerusalem, which was the Samaritans. They had fear that if they were to start building anything, that the Samaritans would get offended. And since the Samaritans would get offended, they feared that the the Samaritans would oppose their building. Oh, you can't. Oh, why are you building? The thing's been like that for 70 years. We've been chilling here. Why are you? you, What are you building? Why are you building? You can't do that. So they feared. It hasn't even happened yet. They feared opposition. They feared being opposed. So because they feared, they did not build. And the last reason why they didn't build was the one that really blew me away. They refused to build because the time had not been convenient. The time was not convenient. In the 17 years that they had been back, there was no convenient time ever For them to build, not a Saturday, not a Monday, not a Tuesday, not a Wednesday, not a Thursday afternoon, not one hour, not there was no time. 
it was not convenient for them. Has God ever wanted you? Has God ever called you to do something? But you told him, I, I got to get my finances in order. I don't have enough crops. I don't have enough crops. Yeah, I, I do want to contribute to that. I do want to do that, but ah, I don't have enough time. I, mm, I can't do it. I don't have the finances to serve like that. So I can't do it. Has God ever wanted you to do something? Has he ever called you to do something, but you feared the opposition? You feared what would happen to you as a repercussion if you did step out in faith and do what God wanted you to do. Did you fear what would happen to you? Did you feel like, oh, if I said this, my boss would fire me. If I stood out for this, my boss would let me go. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't get the promotion. If I stood out, Lord, I know what you're calling me to do, but I can't do it because if I do, there's a fear that I have that if I do it, I'm going to lose something. Has God ever told you to do something? Has he ever called you to do something, but you told him, you know what, God, I get what you want me to do. That looks really cool. That looks super awesome, but the timing's off. It's not convenient for me. It's not. These were the reasons that they had given to God. And I wonder, have we ever said something like that? Have you ever said something similar? But God is not one to be swindled. He's not. You can give all the reasons and all the excuses in the world, but God knows the real reason why behind everything. And the reason why I say that is because of God's response in the very next verse. In verse 3 of chapter 1, God speaks through Haggai and tells him this. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves? I, I like that because God is kind of like quoting them. Oh, it's not a time for the Lord's house to be built. But then God comes back and tells them, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house my house, remains a ruin. It remains a ruin. God is saying to them, I thought you said you had fear of building. No, 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 no. You were able to build. You were able to build your house. And look at the way they built them. Take, a look, take note of that word paneled. That word paneled is just not some fancy word that the, that the Bible tossed in. That word paneled? It means something so like mind, I, I couldn't believe it when I read it. That word paneled means that they were able to build extravagantly. That word paneled means that they were able to use costly woodwork. That word panel means that the, the type of stuff and material that they used to build their own houses was comparable to the luxurious things that you would find only in a king's palace at that time. So not only were they able to build, they were able to build it up. They were able to build top-notch. They were able to build up what they wanted to build up, how they wanted to build it up, and they wanted it to make it look awesome. It's almost kind of like, hey, we were in exile for 70 years. Let me do it up big over here. God, you owe me this. And all the while, while they were building their houses up, God's house 
was over here in ruins. And we can learn something so important here. If we are totally consumed with building our own houses, if we are totally consumed with building our own houses, meaning if we are totally consumed with our own careers, if we are totally consumed with our own agenda, if we are totally consumed with our own bank accounts and our own goals, if we are so consumed with building our own house, the house that the Lord is trying to build up in your life, the one that he really wants to build, it's over here in ruins, not even touched, not even with one stone laid. And just to be very clear, I'm not saying that it's bad to pursue a career or to have an agenda or to have a bank account or to have your own goals. I'm not saying it's bad to have any of those things. What I'm saying is that those things, we should hand them to God. We should hand them to God and say, God, what do you want us to do with these things? And do you want me to even pursue these things? Because I'll tell you something right now. I don't want to chase after anything that God does not want me to chase after. If I chase after something that God doesn't want me to chase, it's useless. It's pointless. Why even do it? I only want to be chasing after the things that God wants me to chase after. Because check this out. If we only chase after the things that we want, if we do it our way, if we build our own house, if we do it without God, those things, the agenda, the career, the bank account, the goals, believe it or not, they become empty wells. They become empty wells that do not satisfy. Let me show you what I mean by that. In Haggai, the very next verse of chapter 1. Verse 5, God tells this through Haggai to the people about that. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. He actually repeats that a few times. Give careful thought to your ways. What is he saying? Hey, guys, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing for a second. For the past 17 years, you have been building up your own house. My house has remained in ruins. Think about what you are doing right now. Because as a result of what you've been doing, because as a result of what you've been doing, look at what has happened to you. He says this in verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have your fill. Enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in it. What is God saying here? He is saying that as long as you keep building your own house, you will live a life that is constantly trying to fill up the cups. And just when you think you've done enough to fill them up, guess what? You're not done. You still have to do more. But meanwhile, meanwhile, the one that loves you, the one that loves you and the one that wants to and can quench your thirst, the one that loves you, the one that wants to and can clothe you and keep you warm, the one that loves you, 
and the one that can and give you an abundant harvest like you've never seen, the one that wants to and can plug the holes in your purse, his house is over here in ruins. The one that can do all of that is over here while we build up our own house. Haggai continues to tell the people in verse 9, as if it wasn't clear enough, he tells them this. You expected much, because let's face it, we all do at some point. You expected much, but it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Why Why would you let it not come to fruition? Why would you let the things that I have my hands on right now, why would you just blow it away like that, God? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Haggai tosses in, he changes it up just by one word. He tosses in that word, busy. He tosses in that word, busy. While each of you is busy building your own house house. About a week ago, I came across this really cool quote, and I shared it with my wife because I thought it was super powerful, and I think it really lends to the message here. It says this. I don't know who wrote it, but it's super cool. It says this. Often, the devil's most powerful lie isn't that he doesn't exist, or that there is no God, or no Bible, or no truth. Often his most powerful lie is that there is no hurry. You have enough time. I can hear the enemy whispering, hey, hey, there's no hurry. Don't bother building this right here. There's no hurry. Keep building your own house. Keep building, build up the things that you want to build up because this right here, there's enough time. You can, get, you, you can get to this any day of the week. You can, any, any day of the year. There's enough time. Build over here. Don't build over here. And meanwhile, as we keep building and building and building what we want to build, the house of God is in ruins. There is no hurry. You have enough time. Stay building your own house. There will always be time to build God's house later on. But here's the thing. If we believe that, if we believe that, we will eat but never have enough. We will earn, we will drink but never have our fill. We will put clothes on and not be warm. We will earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in it. Give careful thought to your ways, everybody. We should always be giving careful thought to our ways. How are you building? How are you building? Better question. Sorry, scratch that. Better question. 
Whose house are you building? Whose house? Do you find yourself constantly having to go back to a well? Do you find yourself constantly lacking? Maybe you might be building the wrong house. The people, the people when they heard this word from the prophet Haggai, it stirred them. It's kind of like Haggai called them out really good. Hey, guys, just so you know, this is what's happening. It stirred them. It moved them. And it prompted them to act in obedience. And look at what they did as a result when they heard what God had told them through Haggai. Because let me tell you something. Whenever you hear God's word, there should always be a reaction. Whenever you hear God's word, we should always be prompted to do something. Whenever we hear God's word, it should stir us to do something with our lives. Whether it's to improve it, whether it's to correct something, whether it's to forgive somebody, there should always be something that we do as a result of hearing God's word. And I'll be honest, if you hear this message today and you walk out this door and you do nothing about what you heard, you're building over here while this house remains in ruins still. But look at what they did as a result. They started to build the house of God. And because they started to build the house of God, look at what God tells them. Because I'll tell you something right now. Why should we build? Why should we build God's house? Why should should we put so much emphasis into going back to that, into doing it? Look at what Haggai tells them because of their reaction. They started to build. They started to build. Their spirits were stirred by God. And look at what God tells them. Then Haggai, this is the very last verse in Haggai. Well, the very last verse that we're going to be touching on. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of of Zerubbabel, son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. God stirred up everybody. The 50,000 that were there that weren't doing anything for the past 17 years, God stirred them up and they were all doing something. And they began They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. I am with you, declares the Lord. Building God's house in your life is not building a physical building. Building God's house in your life means building your relationship with him, building your relationship with him, removing all of the things that can distract you from building here, taking you away, not from here, but doing the work over here. Because let me tell you something, when you're doing the work over here, all this other stuff over here gets taken care of. It does. It does. You don't have to worry about the meals. You don't have to worry about the finances. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because God got it all covered. Why? Because you're working over here. I don't know about you, but I want God to say that to me. 
I want to be working on God's house. I want to be working on our relationship. I want me and God to be cool. I want us, well, not cool. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I submit to him. I'm obedient to him. I want, a God, I want God to come to me. Eddie, I'm with you. I want, I'm with you. Think about that. God coming down and literally telling you, because of the work that you're doing, I am with you. Because of how you're built, I am with you. Who better to have with you when life gets rough? When you get that phone call and it's horrible news, you'll hear the voice, I am with you. When you don't know where the next meal is coming from, he'll say, I am with you. When everything and everything seems to be imploding and your world is turned sideways, he'll say, I am with you. When you don't have it figured out, I am with you. When you don't know which direction to go in, I am with you. When you need someone to be there, when everybody else has left you, when those that you thought would be there aren't, and you feel all by yourself and all alone with nobody to turn to and nobody's giving you a phone call, and you're going through the worst moment of your life and all you need is somebody to be there with you, he will say, I am with you. Just four words. I am with you. Those words can change your life. Because remember, God doesn't have to say a lot to say a lot. He doesn't have to say a lot to say a lot. When I take at the look, when I take a look at the book of Zephaniah, there's one phrase that stands out to me. For the day of the Lord is near. Remember how, the, how that should prompt us to act. How the people should have reacted and they didn't when they heard that. For the day of the Lord is near. And when I take a look at the book of Haggai, the one phrase that stands out to me the most out of anything is build his house. Build God's house. For the day of the Lord is near. Build God's house. For the day of the Lord is near. Build God's house. For the day of the Lord is near. Build God's house. How are you building? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you, my God, for this message, my God. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you are doing. And we thank you, Lord, in advance of what it is that you are going to do, my God, in our lives. Lord, I pray, my God, that we would be stirred up by your spirit, my Lord. I pray that we would react and do, my Lord. I pray that we would not be so consumed with the things of the world, my God, with how the world sees it, my God. I pray, Lord, that we would not focus on building our own house, my Lord, 
but that we would focus on building your house, my God. Because as long as we focus on building our house, Lord, your house remains in ruins, my God. And just like you sent Haggai, my Lord, to stir up the people, to refocus them, my God, to let them know what is really important, my God, I pray right now, Lord, that you would do the same exact thing with every single one of us here, my God, that you would refocus us, my God, that we would look, that we would consider our ways, that we would think about what it is that we are doing, whose house we are building, and we would realize, God, that if we are not building your house, my God, that you would take us away from that so that we could build your house, my God. So that we could build our relationship with you, my Lord. You love us so much, my God, that you have literally told us, Lord, that you are the one that can fill the purses, my God. You are the one that can give us the fill, my Lord. You are the one that can clothe us and keep us warm, my God. To do anything else outside of that, my Lord, we are trying to do it on our own, my Lord, in our own strength, in our own abilities, my God, trusting in what we could do, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that we do not trust in us, Lord, but that we trust in you, my God, that we would build what you want us to build, my God, because I know for a fact every person here, Lord, wants to hear you say to them, for I am with you. I pray that in your mighty name, Lord. And everybody, people said, amen. Go build the right house. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.